Uh, so, if you would turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Peter 1, I will read verses 3 to 12. I hear God's Word. And blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found in res- to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that You would use this, Your Word, uh, to strengthen us, equip us. We pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. So, um, I know this doesn't affect a a fair number of you uh, in this room, but school started back this week after after Christmas break um, for most people. Uh, school started back uh, on Wednesday, I think it was. Um, and you know, school can be a um, school can be a, an interesting place. It can be a difficult place. I mean, from time to time, you have teachers that are just mean. Uh, sometimes you have teachers that just uh, don't like you very much. Uh, sometimes you have subjects that are just hard to learn. I mean, there's some stuff out there that's really kind of hard to get sometimes there's bullies on the playground um and you kind of have to be careful i'm going to stay away from that person because i know they're going to just be mean to me at recess school can be a a difficult place for kids but but if you think about it have you ever have you ever paid attention you know, your, your kid's walking out the door to go catch the bus or, or your, your kid's getting out of the, the car at school. Uh, you're dropping them off and they're running inside the building uh, or they're walking out the door and getting in their own car and driving to school. You ever thought about the last thing you say to your kids at that point? My guess is it goes something like this. I love you. Have a great day. I'll see you when you get home. 
That sort of standard, it may not be in that order. It may not be exactly those words. But I bet if you pay attention, those are the words that come out of your mouth. I love you. Have a great day. And I will see you. I'll be here. I'll see you when you get home. What if instead of dropping a child off for school, what if instead you were writing a letter to believers who are heading out into a world that's far more difficult than any school setting. What would you say to them? What would your words be? You know, you, you, okay, don't, don't press this too far, but you're dropping the church off somewhere to go out into the world. And as they get out of the car, what are those things that you say? Well, my guess is you say something like, well, something like what Peter says. Because that's exactly why Peter is writing this letter. He's writing this letter to saints in a world who are in need of encouragement, equipping, because there's persecution out there, because they know they are going to face trials and difficulties and struggles in this life. And they're going to do so precisely because of their faith in Christ. What would you say to them if they marched off? What would you say to the church if they marched off into the world knowing that you really couldn't go with them? That's first Peter. That's why Peter writes. And for that matter, there's much of our world that's really a lot like Peter's world. We're, we're living, okay, we don't feel this quite so much in Athens, Alabama. But that's okay because we watch the news. And the news we get isn't just from Athens, Alabama. It's from all over the world. Or you watch it on Twitter or some other form of social media. We live in what is becoming more and more a post-Christian world. Peter lived in a pre-Christian world. His world was not that different. It's okay to say Jesus is a Lord. You're just not allowed to say Jesus is the Lord. It's okay to say, I believe in Jesus and, and people will let you and that's fine. As long as you don't tell them that what they believe is wrong. That's Peter's world. It's really no different from ours. He lived in a world that was content to hear Christians say, well, I mean, you know, to hear, or for, for non-Christians to kind of go, look, as long as you just want to add Jesus to all these other gods and goddesses we have, that's fine. Do what you want. We don't care. Just don't step on our toes. And so Peter writes to a pre-Christian church, but it equips and encourages us in our post-Christian world also. And he writes to the church, God loves you. Have a great day. I'll see you at the end. I'll see you after your day. Th those words ring in our ears to give us assurance of our status and our hope for the future. And that status, that hope for the future is supposed to carry us through the day. That's exactly why you say to your kids, I love you. Have a great day. I'll see you this afternoon. Their status is secure. It, it, it goes with them and their hope for the future goes with them throughout the day. First, I want you to notice 
Christians will face persecution. Look at verse 6. The saints receiving this letter have endured various trials. We don't know exactly what the trials are. He, He doesn't list them. We don't know exactly what they are. Some... Some of the churches in this region of sort of North Asia, Turkey, uh, modern day Turkey, some of them are are Jewish background. Perhaps they were ridiculed for that background. The vast majority of them are Gentiles and perhaps they're mocked by friends and family because they're forsaking their past to embrace some new teaching some new God and and they're embracing Christ and him alone. They have the arrogance to say that Christ is the only savior. And so friends and family are now persecuting them because of their faith. Peter's writing in the early 60s A.D. 6234. I don't know how well you know your Roman emperor history, your Roman emperor timeline. Who is the Roman emperor at the time that Peter is writing this letter? It's a guy by the name of Nero. Perhaps you've heard of him. You know, the stories are told of of him actually using Christians as torches to light his parties. That's not just hearsay. That's actually multiple Roman historians from his day. In fact, you've got people actually, Tacitus and Suetonius, both saying things like, they they describe Nero as torturing Christians, a class of men given to a new and mischievous superstition. It's precisely because of their faith, and precisely because the Christian faith flies in the faith face of the beliefs and convictions of the world around us, that we are sure to face trials. Many of these Christians during Nero's day suffered, they were persecuted because what they believed affected how they acted and what they believed and how they acted didn't look like the rest of the world around them. Maybe, maybe for some of us living in the U.S. is causing a bit of a problem because we have this notion that trials and persecutions are for other people. Therefore, those people out there, therefore, you know, People in other parts of the world, but but that shouldn't be true of us here in the United States. Maybe maybe we've lived in our country with our, our freedoms protected for so long that we don't know how to live without those freedoms. And and in the arena of ideas, Christianity is getting pushed further and further to the perimeter. But have you have you have you noticed? As you read through God's word, have you noticed the ease with which the Bible speaks of our trials and our suffering? I mean, Jesus himself in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. 
You can back up just a couple of pages and find James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of various kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Jesus in John 15 warns that, of course, the world will hate us. The world hated him and he's in us. So naturally, the world would hate us and we should therefore expect persecution. The world will persecute us because they persecuted Christ before us. And it doesn't help that that many TV preachers are out there telling you, you can have your best life now. And that if you just believe in Jesus, then all the money from the money tree in your backyard will suddenly land in your bank account. And that you'll be healthy and you'll never get sick again. Persecution on on account of Christ shouldn't surprise us. But I want you to notice that that persecution serves a purpose. Because look at verse 7. In verse 7, we read that that persecution is is refining, it's testing, more precious than gold, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Gold is made purer, purer, say that three times now, Gold is made more pure. Grammatically, that's wrong. Humor me. By throwing it in fire, you burn it. And imperfections and impurities and all that sort of stuff that isn't gold floats to the top and you can skim it off. And what you're left with is more pure gold. Well, that's, that's the aim. That's the point of Trials and conflicts and difficulty in our life. For that matter, we just saying, the flame will not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. The aim of trials, the point of these trials, the, the, the intent of this suffering that you and I endure is It's intended to strengthen our faith and to confirm and affirm our faith both to ourselves and to others around us. Now, I suppose I should warn, I don't think I should have to say this, but just in case, don't go looking for it. Like, you don't get to violate other parts of the Bible in order to be persecuted so that you can be strengthened in your faith. You don't get to... Well, I know the Bible says love your neighbor as yourself, but I'm going to go be a jerk so that I can be persecuted so that I can endure trials and see that that it doesn't work that way. You don't go looking for them. But it shouldn't surprise us that living for Christ in a non-Christian world means enduring trials. First of all, Christians will face persecution in this life. Second, Christians will face persecution in this life grounded in the love of God. Look at how Peter begins this passage. He begins with, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And and he praises God. Why? Well, because it turns out that our salvation um, has been eternally orchestrated by the triune God and accomplished in time and space 
by Him. Do you see the language of verse 3? According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Don't miss the, the grace and mercy in that sentence. We didn't think it up. We're not the ones who created salvation by faith in God. He did. We didn't go looking for it. We didn't design this. This wasn't something of our creation. It turns out that our salvation has been a, a cosmic plan by the triune God from eternity past. He has caused us to be born again. And that salvation is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's his life. It's his burial. It's his death. It's his bloodshed. It's his resurrection that assures us of our resurrection. It's his defeating death that confirms to us that he's worthy of our faith and our trust. You know, it can be tempting sometimes to think that we've got to do certain things to make God love us. We've got to do certain things to make God happy with us. Well, if I have my quiet time in the morning and, and maybe if I read extra, he'll love me extra. Or it'll make up for the fact that I didn't actually have my quiet time yesterday. Or if I do this or I do that, then I can earn, I can gain God's favor. Now, hear me out. Read your Bible. I mean, you want your, your thinking, you want your lives to be affected and renewed and, and reformed and reshaped after God's word. But we don't gain favor by doing God's favor by doing certain things. Do you remember John 3:16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He sent Jesus because he already loved us even while we were still dead in our trespasses and sins. God's love precedes His sending the Son. And we who trust in Christ have, have received adoption as sons and daughters of God. Why does that matter? Why does that order matter? Well, the order matters because when you step out into a world that is opposed to the gospel, that's opposed to, to Christ, that's opposed to God's word, when you step out into a world that will only maybe barely tolerate it if you keep your beliefs to yourself and don't call anyone else out for being wrong or, or, or challenge what they believe or step on their toes in any way. We step out of that car knowing that we are accepted by God because we're in Christ, not because we obey Christ. Mom drops kid off at school and says, I love you. And that love is supposed to go with that child and give him comfort and encouragement and security throughout the day. You go out into a world that opposes the gospel, knowing that God has already said, I love you. And there's nothing that can take that away. There's nothing 
that can make that come to an end. Now, lest you push the illustration further than I am intending to push it, let me make this observation. Parents, you drop kids off at school, and guess what? You don't get to go with them. You don't get out of the, you don't park the car, put your keys in your pocket, get out of the car, and go in and sit all day, thank goodness, with your child in school. But look at verse 8. Verse 8, we're told that though you don't see him, you believe in him. Uh, no, it's not, it's not verse 8. Wait. Uh, being guarded. There's supposed to be a being guarded. And I can't find it. But it's in there. But basically, the, the passage, the verse, if, and I, you know, when you get under pressure like this, everybody's looking at you, and you might even be online, although you're not really sure, because you're not sure if it's working or not, and you can't find it. Verse 5. So verse 5. Thank you. All the stress, the pressure. Notice the end of verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Oh, and by the way, you are being guarded through faith by God's power. Mom and dad, you drop kid off at school and you wave. God sends you out into the world, a world that opposes the gospel and says, hold on, I'm coming with you. Isn't that what Jesus said to the disciples right before he ascended into heaven? Right? Their, their encouragement and equipment and, and solace and, and power for evangelism was, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We're being guarded by God's power in this life. Yes, we may face persecution and trials in this life, but we do so guarded, grounded, secure in the love of God. Christians will face persecution in this life. Christians will face persecution in this life, safe and secure, grounded in God's love. And finally, Christians will face persecution in this life with the hope of a life without it. In the future. I've said this before. Uh, Jesus doesn't just save us from something. He saves us to something. He doesn't just simply save you from your sin. And then sort of pat you on the backside and say. Good luck with all that. He saves you to an eternal hope. God didn't just take the children of Israel out of Egypt. He took them to the promised Land. Well, look at the language of verse 7. We find in verse 7, this tested genuineness of your faith. Um, no, that's not right. Doggone it. Verse 3. I don't know how I got a 7 in there. Uh, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, you and I use the word hope. And what we mean is, boy, it sure would be cool if this form of uncertain outcome in the future were to be the outcome that happened. Did that sentence make any sense? We wish for something to be true in the future. There's this sort of preference. Boy, I sure hope I get a really good dessert today for lunch. I have no idea. Actually, I do. That's not a fair illustration. But... We hope for things we wish to be true in the future. That's not the way hope works in the Bible. 
hope in the Bible is always longing for that which is guaranteed. Waiting for, anticipating, expecting that which is sure and certain. Well, we've been saved. We've been caused to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ to an inheritance that is imperishable. To a living hope through Christ's resurrection. Our inheritance is future. We anticipate that which is future. It's like mom saying to their child, I'll see you after school. We've got this guaranteed promise of an eternity with God and and. And it's sure and certain and nothing can take it away from us. And in that day, there will be no more trials. In that day, there will be no more persecution. That day is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It's pure and perfect and permanent. But in the meantime, we expect trials in this life. Maybe you'll ask, Well, but how long? How long do I have to actually endure this? Have you ever looked up the Guinness Book of Records for the the longest living, oldest person ever? Who lived to be the oldest age ever? Uh, There was a a lady who died in, in 1997 at the ripe old age of 122 She was actually in a movie playing herself at the age of 114 because, turns out, she had met Vincent Van Gogh in 1888. That's a fact that means nothing whatsoever. Okay, on the off chance, somebody in this room makes Guinness's book and beats this lady. It's possible. I don't want to take anything away from any of you. But on the off chance that someone breaks that record, 125 years. And let's assume that you are facing trials for your faith every single year of your life. 125 years of trials and suffering and persecution. Okay, I realize that's unlikely. But let's, for the sake of argument... We have to endure 125 years of trial and suffering. How long is that compared to this eternity? How long is that compared to the hope that we have of eternity? Remind me again of those words in Amazing Grace. When we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun 20,000 at a minimum I realize that's John Newton and not exactly the Bible right you you understand that distinction compared to 125 and that's why Peter can say in verse 6, though now for a little while. 
These trials may last our entire lifetime. I, I suppose that's possible. It seems highly unlikely, but I suppose it's possible. Those trials and suffering and persecution could happen. We could deal with them for our entire lifetime, but our lifetime can't possibly outlast eternity. Peter's writing in the mid-60s, and within the next five or six years, he will be crucified, reportedly, upside down on a hill just outside of Rome. And what does he want his people to know? What does he want the church to know? What does he want these believers back in, in Asia, in, in Turkey, uh, to know uh, before he leaves? What does he want to tell us before we get out of the car, as it were? Yes, you may face trials in this life. But God loves you. And He's preparing a place for you at the end. A place with no persecution whatsoever. Believer in Jesus Christ, God loves you. And there's nothing that can stop that. And He's preparing a place for you that will be yours forever. May you be strengthened and encouraged and comforted as you go out into a world that opposes Christ in every way, hearing in the back of your head, I love God say to you, I love you. And I'll see you when you get home. I'll see you at the end of the day. Realizing, of course, he's not leaving you. You're not on your own. Don't push the illustration too far. I suppose I should also warn you, if you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Christ for your salvation, then life here might be nice and easy and smooth sailing and comfortable and maybe pleasant and may not be persecutorial at all. It may not be a struggle at all. But the difficulties you face in the life to come will be utter torment. Look to Jesus. Believe in him. Trust in him. And be granted this same hope, grounded in this same love. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, your love to us, unmerited as it is, unworthy as we are. Uh, we thank you for your grace and your mercy poured out on us in and through Christ. We pray that as we go out and fly our mission, as it were, throughout the week, as we live our lives in a world that is becoming more and more post-Christian, would you remind us, would you echo in our minds daily the reminder that you love us and that you're preparing a place for us? That we go out safe and secure in your love and nothing that we face can snatch that from us, can snatch us from your hand. And that when the day is over, we will be with you forever, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance. Prepare us for that, we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.